The views and opinions expressed on my story, Living with Lupus Podcast, represents each person's individual experience. By listening to this podcast or reading our blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lupus podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved. Thank you for joining me for another episode of My Story Living with Lupus Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, and I'm so glad that you could join me on this Wednesday, January the 27th. 2021. On today's episode, we'll hear a positive story from CEO, entrepreneur, lupus advocate, and she's an influencer. I'm talking to Stephanie Jerry. She'll tell you her story, how she turned her lupus experience around to make it a positive one. Also, did you know that there exists racial disparities in the use of surgical procedures in the U.S.? Well, if you didn't, you're getting ready to find out. So you know what I want you to do all the way from the United States to Jakarta, Indonesia. Get ready to grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, and to my listeners late at night. You know I appreciate you. So get ready to grab your favorite glass of wine and come on and join the conversation right here on my story living with lupus podcast first up is stephanie jerry telling her story of living with lupus so stay with me all right today as promised we have stephanie Jerry with us today to tell her story, and it is a positive one, about living with lupus. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate the invite. Tell the listening audience um, about being diagnosed when you were diagnosed with lupus, and how did you feel about that? Okay, so for me, um, in hindsight, I know now that I was having symptoms my, like the last part of my high school, my final year of high school. Um, I got like a really bad cold, and it just would not go away. 
for whatever reason, just nothing would make this thing go away. And I remember mom took me to the doctor. He gave me a B12 shot, and I felt fine afterwards, kind of. Like, I never felt 100%, but I didn't have the cold anymore. I just, my body was feeling fatigued. And then once I graduated, my hair started falling. I'm like, okay, did I do something wrong? You know, because I was getting perms at the time. But um, it, that dominoed into the body pains. And I was like, okay, I don't know what this is. So um, luckily for me, because I know you have lupus as well, I was diagnosed pretty quickly. I started having symptoms in August. And by that next April 2004, you know, I went to a dermatologist, which is crazy because I went to a rheumatologist first. And for whatever reason, they told me they couldn't figure out what was going on. But the dermatologist took a skin biopsy and he came back and he told me, okay, I, I think I know what it is, but I want to send off the test to make sure. But I can pretty much tell you, I can 100% sure know that I that you have something, but I don't want to tell you until the test comes back. I'm like, okay, but at the time, I still wasn't, I think because I was young, I, I, it didn't click in my head that this could be something serious, you know? Right. So, when he came back and he was like, oh, okay, so it's exactly what I thought it was, it's lupus, in my mind, you know, I'm 18, I'm like, okay, cool, we know what it is, okay, you gonna give me medication, is this, you know, is this something I need to take long term, or is this something temporary? Um... He said, I can't answer any of that. And he referred me, you know, to a specialist and other doctors. But for me in that moment, I was excited because I thought, okay, boom, we got it. We know what it is. We can fix it. You know, that was my thought process. Um, but fast forward a year later to my first kidney failure, I was like, okay, this is something more than what I thought because I didn't do any research that first year mm-hmm. at all. I just was listening to what the doctors told me. They said, take this. I took that. They told me to do this. I did that. I didn't, I wasn't. I don't think, I can't say I didn't care enough. I just wasn't aware enough to know what questions I needed to ask at the time. Right, right. What questions did you ask eventually? Okay, so after the first kidney biopsy, I started asking, especially in the hospital, because um, let me take a step back. Before, before that first kidney biopsy, I had my first bout of pneumonia. And that kind of made me start to ask questions, but not fully until after the kidney issue um i remember i was in icu and i'm a very quiet person normally (laughs) um but when it's time to tell you know when it's time to talk i'll talk but most of the time i'm just i'm a very quiet chill person so i'm in icu basically fight for my life because one lung was full and the other one was almost there and i was in and out but i remember um one of the times I actually was awake enough to hear them telling my mom this and tell my brother this, I was like, okay, this is something serious. I need to fight harder. You know, I told myself that. It, it amazed me that when I finally got out of ICU and I went to a regular floor that my doctor tried to give me an antidepressant. I'm like, huh? So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at my cup of pills. And he never mentioned it. Uh-huh. Nurse came in with my daily pills and I'm looking, I'm like, well, what is this extra pill? And she's like, hmm. You don't usually take that? Like, no. So she looked it up and she's like, oh, yeah, it, I think she said it's all off or something like that. I'm like, isn't that an antidepressant? She's like, yeah. And she's like, aren't you on that? I'm like, no. I've never taken any of those. I'm not depressed. Like, what the heck? And she was like, well, let's go ask. And he was like, oh, because it looked like you were depressed. I was like, but you didn't ask me any questions. Mm-hmm. Determine that. So how do you tell somebody's depressed just from looking at them? So I was like, okay, nah, I can't do this. I got to start asking questions now. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, that's... So that kind of made me start to ask. Yeah, that's what... um, This podcast, that's what I try to get 
um, people who listen to it um, to realize that you are your own best advocate. And it's important not to just take anything that is handed out to you until you say, why are you doing this? Why are you giving me this? What are the side effects of this? Is there another alternative route that we can take to get from point A to point B? Just don't sit back and be quiet about your own health. And it, it's another thing that I, I noticed about you. You are very, very positive and upbeat. How did you get to this point, Stephanie? I, I will say I've lost my way a couple of times to get to, to, to be at this point I am today. I'm not going to lie about that, but I think I've always been a pretty a pretty positive person only because I, I realized at an early age that life was really short, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I lost my sister when I was really young, and then I lost my brother in 2007 to a car accident on the job, so I was like, okay, you know, this, this is... This was like this life is something that we shouldn't take for granted. So why am I going to spend most of my time being sad or depressed about something that I either can't change or do anything about? And if it is something I can do about it, then most likely I'm not going to be sad or depressed about it. That's my thought process. So it's like okay, I can either sit here all day and cry my eyes out and dwell on the fact that I don't feel good or that I am in a pain, or if I can move, then I'm going to move. Mm -hmm. And if I can't move, then I just take that day. You know, my body's telling me, hey, today's the day to rest, okay? I hear you. I'm going to take the step back. But I don't, I don't, I try my best not to dwell on anything negative too long. Because it's going to happen. We're human. We're going to have those moments where our mind drifts or somebody does something or says something that triggers something in us. And it's going to drift. But then it's like, okay, well, once it starts to drift, do you just allow it to keep going? Or do you go, hey, what, you know, hey, let's bring it back while we don't. Now, um, I get a lot of questions regarding um, people ask me all the time, what do I eat? Is there a lupus diet? Um, and I, I tend to tell them that, I'm a vegan because um, my stomach, due to this illness, it attacked my gastrointestinal system. So when I was younger, in high school, um, I went vegetarian because it became harder for me to digest meat. And um, so my mother used to um, prepare for me chicken or fish until... That became hard for me to digest, and I just turned totally vegan. Now, Stephanie, tell me, are you <laughs> vegan, and and what was your decision on going vegan? What made you go vegan? Um, a couple of things made me go vegan. One, I'll be honest with you, I was never a big meat person, and it's crazy because my mom is 100% country girl, mm-hmm. but me personally was never a big meat person, and I think it also has to do with the fact that she never gave us a lot of meat to begin with. Most of our 
those were, you know, beans and cornbread or, um, I don't know, liver, liver and onion mm-hmm. was probably the most meat I ever got <laughs> until, like, I had my first burger by choice at, like, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I think my biggest thing was I more I was more of a seafood person. Mm-hmm. So what kind of triggered me was I remember one day one of my doctors was like, "Have you ever been to a um, nutritionist, a dietitian?" I'm like, "No," and I'm already like at this point about eight years in to lupus. I'm like, "No, nobody's ever sent me there." I didn't think you know it's not a thought. So they sent me, and the doctor gave me this low sodium diet for because I was you know almost to the point of kidney failure so I had to eat a certain diet for a little bit and I'm looking at this list and I'm like there's nothing on this paper that I want to eat because I'm a very picky eater so I started doing my research and I found out that a lot of the stuff on that paper that the dietitian gave me according to my research we're not supposed to have as lupus patients so I'm like okay what the heck so I was like okay bump this I'm going to figure it out on my own. Because at that point, I think I got frustrated. Because I was like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Mm -hmm. Because that was the second time that I had an encounter with a doctor that wasn't all the way right. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, bump this. I'm going to... I was already asking questions with my medications and stuff like that. But I wasn't asking questions about what I should eat. And I never thought about it. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, let's do this. Let me try being vegetarian for a year. So I started that, and about six months in, my sister convinced me, because literally, you might as well say I was vegan, the only thing I was holding on to was cheese. I hadn't I hadn't drank milk, like regular cow milk, since like 2005 mm-hmm. at this point. So I had already was drinking plant-based milk for years and drinking, eating the ice cream and making my own, etc. I just, I was obsessed with cheese. I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> so I told myself, okay, I'll do what you want. I will give it up for a month. And we'll see what happens because at this point I had already had my second kidney failure and I was in remission for the second time. Well, air quotes around remission because remission is not what people think. Mm-hmm. And um, I gave her the month. I said, okay, I'm not going to any cheese, no pizza. Cause pizza is like my favorite food in the world. I said, I'm going to give it up for a month and we're going to see what happens. But I was like sarcastic about it. Cause I was like, it ain't going to do nothing. And then a month I'm going to go get my cheese pizza. I don't know what you're talking about. And that's going to be it. So the month passed, and I looked around, and I, I say about, well, not even a month passed. I want to say about five or six days in, I realized, like, I wasn't in pain for the first day. Like, literally no pain. Not even a little bit of pain. Just mm-hmm. No pain whatsoever. And I was like, ah, crap. <laughs> I said, maybe it's a fluke. It's a fluke. <laughs> it's a fluke. This is just the, the, the unicorn day of the year. It's it's not the food. It's not the, It wasn't the cheese. All right. Another week goes by, but now it's like a couple of days of me not having pain. So I'm like, ah, crap. She was right. And I might have to actually give this up. But then at the end of the month, I was like, I'm not going back to cheese because I'm not in pain no more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was like full on vegan. So I was like, there's no way you're going to convince me as much as I still have my cravings. I'm not going back because I know I feel a thousand percent better than I did before knowing now what I know. I'm like, okay, I have to tell everybody, like, even if you don't go full vegan, take some stuff out because it'll help with the pain levels and so many other things. You know, um, I've told people that, and I, and they fail to realize, especially with um, meat 
and um, dairy, they don't realize how they pump those animals up with hormones and antibiotics. And I even did a podcast on this. I said, do you realize if you go to the doctor and you're sick and the doctor puts you on an antibiotic and that antibiotic doesn't work because you're consuming an animal that has been pumped up with the same antibiotic and hormones um, that um, it's really not going to do you any good. So that when you go back to the doctor, he's going to say, well, since this antibiotic didn't do any good, let's switch you over to another antibiotic. It's all in what you put in your body. Um, You put in good, you're going to get good out. You put in bad, you're going to be in that pain. And I try to tell people, I'm not trying to change your lifestyle, but I know for a fact, if you change simple little things in your diet, it will help you. It will. And um, I have never been able to consume cow's milk at all. Um, It was just something about it. It just made me sick, just like beef. Um, When I was younger, I could look at it and just get sick to the stomach. I couldn't digest it or anything. So, yeah, it's all in what you put in your body. You put in good, you'll get good good out. Go ahead. You know what I saw interesting that you said, though? You mentioned the antibiotics, and I want to just kind of touch on that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I found out that I was allergic. I, can't, I wish I could remember the name of it right now, and I, I probably should because, obviously, if I go to the emergency room, I need to tell them. But there's an antibiotic that they give us that they also pump into the animals mm-hmm. that I'm allergic to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here I am eating, and I'm wondering why I was always feeling so crazy and so funky afterwards. It's because I was getting pumped I was eating something that usually if it gets pumped into me, I have a really bad reaction. Uh huh. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And yeah. they allow this in our food. Yes. And that's what um, I can hear people say, oh, I'm going to eat it to the day I die. And I just look. Um, but you don't realize what they're putting in that. You don't realize what they're injecting poultry with to make a chicken bigger so they can sell it quicker you know um they do that with cows they do it with pigs and um you 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 just don't know but people say they cannot give up the pork they got to have their pork they got to have their steak you can give it up um you get sick enough you will give it up but Steph, you will because um, my fiance, and not to go too far on his story, but he he is a non-Hopkins lymphoma survivor, mm-hmm. and he was the biggest meat person I have ever met in my life. Like he would eat meat every single day. It was crazy. Like every day, all day throughout the day, he's a he has an island background. Mm-hmm. He's a hundred percent vegan, and I thought I would never see the day, but he he did it. And it's, I think it's just a mindset. You have to have the mindset to want to to live and want to do better for your body because we only get one. Yes, yes. Just like if I get a craving for um, 
some chicken, I'll go to the store and get me some oyster mushrooms and I will prepare it like chicken. And it looks like chicken. And I even fooled my sister. My sister said, oh, you cooking chicken? I said, mm-hmm. Now she know I don't eat no chicken. And um, she said, well, save me a piece. I said, okay. She tried it. And she said, oh, what kind of chicken is this? I waited till she got through. I said, you ate a mushroom that tasted like chicken. Or um, I'll fix a meatloaf, but it's a plant-based meatloaf. And she likes that. But But my sister is the type to say, I got to have me some pork, you know, and I I constantly tell her if you only knew what they pumped into that pork. But um, it it is a mindset. It is a mindset. Stephanie, you are also an entrepreneur. Tell the listening audience about how you became an entrepreneur. Okay, so COVID has not been all bad for me. I will say that. Um. Before COVID, I was kind of like in this space where I kind of do it every time I hear the word remission. I kind of be like, okay, I can go now. I can. I want to do a thousand things at once, right? So I was doing Uber, I was doing Lyft, I was doing Postmates, I was doing DoorDash, I was doing. I was doing everything you could think of where I was able to kind of build my own schedule for the days that I have that was kind of still bad and I needed to take a day because. When you have an autoimmune disease or any disease, it's kind of hard to have a regular job mm-hmm. when you miss so many days. Mm-hmm. So when COVID happened, I was like, okay, well, I can't be out here in these streets because I'm a whole bubble baby. And I know from a regular cold, I'm down for a week or two. So mm-hmm. I can't even imagine what my body's going to go through if I was to come into contact with this. So I, I took a step back and I said, okay, well, I do have so many saved. What can I do? What can I do from here? And I looked around. I was like, well, I can use, I can maybe turn what I've already been using on my body for years into an actual business. So I asked my sisters and I asked them for their opinion. Um, I asked my best friend for her opinion. And of course my mom, and of course she's just going to say, do it, do it, do it. I don't care. Do it. Whatever it is, just let me know. I'm going to support you hundred percent. So I was like, okay, just, just do it. So I sat down, I, you know, wrote down my ingredients and, you know, did the, the paperwork stuff. And I started a business using, um, Clean beauty products, so that means all of the products are, of course, 100% natural, no chemicals, um, everything you can pronounce, shea butter, <laughs> uh, calendula oil, uh, I also have beard oils, I do cold processed soaps for sensitive skin, so most of my products are not like the Bath and Body Works scented, but it's more like the aromatherapy scented, so you'll get your lav- lavender and lemongrass, you'll get... Um, your grapefruit scents and things like that, but everything is naturally scented. It's not a fragrance oil, which tends to irritate our skin. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Where can they, listeners, find your products at? Oh, okay. Well, I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at The Botanic Mom. Um, you can also go to botanicbomb.com and that'll direct you to all the social medias as well as you'll be able to see all the products listed. Um, and if you're interested, I do have some new products coming up. It's going to be all body scrubs as well as a bath soap and a foot scrub. And um, 
lastly, what is your call to action? What would you like people to know about having lupus? I would, the, the first thing I would love for people to know is just because we don't look sick doesn't mean we're not sick. And that's the biggest misconception because usually a person will look at another person and say, oh, well, you look sick. Are you feeling okay? Are you having a good day? You know, but we can wake up looking flawless and fabulous as usual. And we are kicking and screaming and dying inside. Mm -hmm. um, lupus is, it can be an invisible illness. It's not invisible for all of us, but for most of us it is, and it's something that I wish people could understand that just because we don't look sick doesn't mean we aren't. Um, I would also like for people to know with lupus that this is not a death sentence. I've had lupus for 16 years. This April will be 17 years since I was diagnosed, about a little under 18 years since I started having symptoms, and I'm still here. By the grace of God, I'm still here. You know, I pray every day. In the beginning, I used to pray to be cured. At some point in my journey, I started praying to be, um, to have strength mm -hmm. to carry this, to be able to fight through this every day. Mm -hmm. And I give um, my biggest, I don't even know what, let me see. I give my biggest credit to God because without him, <laughs> without him, I would not be here at all, at all, because I've had a couple of death scares dealing with hospitals, and I'm still here, and I'm here for a reason, and I'm trying to find my purpose, and I'm trying to walk in that purpose, and I, I want people to know that you can live with lupus. You can live a full life with lupus. Yeah, you're going to have your bad days. You're going to have your good days, but the good days will always outweigh the bad, the bad when you have a positive mindset. Stephanie Jerry, entrepreneur, advocate. CEO influencer. I would like to thank you so much for taking the time out and telling your story. And I really appreciate it. And I want everybody to go over to her websites, her social media pages, and purchase some products from her. Um, the products um, will be listed where you can reach Stephanie at. It will be listed in the description of this podcast. So go and throw her some support because I know I will be placing my order also. Stephanie Jerry, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This was so much fun. Oh my gosh, I love this. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. And um, hopefully... You'll be back on um, telling us about something new that you are doing. Yes. All righty. I have so much plans, you guys just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll be looking forward to it, Stephanie. Thank you so much, and you have a good day. You're welcome. Thank you as well. Bye. Bye. If you would like to appear on an episode of My Story Living with Lupus, you can contact us at mystorylivingwithlupus at gmail.com. Also visit us 
on our Instagram page and also our website, My Story Living with Lupus. Before we go into racial disparities in the use of surgical procedures in the U.S., I want to give you a little bit of background on health disparities by race and ethnicity. And I talked about this before in previous episodes. Um, But here's some facts. The United States is home to stark and persistent racial disparities in health coverage, chronic health conditions, mental health, and mortality. These disparities are not a result of individual or group behavior, but decades of systematic inequality in American economic, housing, and healthcare systems. When we talk about disparities in health, Did you realize in 2017, 10.6% of African Americans were uninsured compared with 5.9% of non-Hispanic whites. 89.4% of African Americans had health care coverage in 2017 compared with 93.7% of white Americans. 44.1% of African Americans had government health insurance coverage in 2017. 12.1% of African Americans under the age of 65 reported having no health insurance coverage at all. Did you realize that 13.8% of African Americans reported having fair or poor health compared with 8.3% of non-Hispanic whites. 80% of African-American women are overweight or obese compared to 64.8% of non-Hispanic white women. In 2017, 12.6% of African-American children had asthma compared with 7.7% of non-Hispanic white children. 42% of African-American adults over age 20 suffer from hypertension compared with 
28.7% of non-Hispanic white adults. Now, when it comes to mental health in the African-American community, in 2018, 8.7% of African-American adults received mental health services compared with 18.6% of non-Hispanic white adults. 6.2% of African-American adults receive prescription medication for mental health services compared with 15.3% of non-Hispanic white adults. In 2018, 3% of African-American adults reported serious psychological distress. The leading cause of African-Americans' death is heart disease and cancer. Now, when it comes to Hispanic Americans. Did you realize in 2017, 16.1% of Hispanics were uninsured compared with 5.9% of non-Hispanic whites. 83.9% of Hispanics had health care coverage in 2017 compared with 93.7% white non-Hispanics. 39.5% of Hispanics had government health insurance coverage in 2017. 20.1% of Hispanics under the age of 65 reported having no health insurance coverage at all. In 2017, 7.7% of Hispanic children were uninsured compared with 4.1% of non-Hispanic whites for 0.0% of non-Hispanic Blacks and 3.8% of non-Hispanic Asian children. Chronic health conditions of the Hispanic, 10% of Hispanics reported having fair or poor health compared with 8.3% of non-Hispanic whites. 21.5% of Hispanic adults over age 20 have been diagnosed with diabetes compared with 13% of white adults over age 20. Approximately 25% of Hispanics have high blood pressure. Hispanic women are 40 
percent more likely to have cervical cancer and 20 percent more likely to die from cervical cancer than non-Hispanic white women. Mental health conditions amongst the Hispanic community. In 2018, 8.8% of Hispanic adults received mental health services compared to 18.6% of non-white Hispanic adults. 6.8% of Hispanic adults receive prescription medication for mental health services compared with 15.4% of non-Hispanic white adults. In 2018, 4.6% of Hispanic adults reported serious psychological distress. In 2017, the number of suicides attempts by adolescent Hispanic females was 40%, higher than that of adolescents, non-Hispanic white females. And the leading causes of death among Hispanics, cancer, heart disease, and accidents. Now, since 2020 and the pandemic, I'm quite sure that these figures are even higher. So just think about this. And when we return, we'll get into the racial disparities in the use of surgical procedures in the US. So stay with me. We all know the benefits of apple cider vinegar. Now you guys know that I'm a vegan and that I have lupus along with other health issues. I used to take ACV every morning before I worked out, but eventually the taste of ACV got to me and I had to look for another alternative. And that's when a friend of mine turned me on to Goli. Goli is the first apple cider vinegar gummy. They give you all the benefits of ACV without the taste. That's right. Goli is vegan, gelatin free, gluten-free, and 100% organic. And the vitamins and the ACV in Goli promotes a healthy heart by maintaining a healthy cholesterol range, controls blood sugar levels, and also curbs your appetite. And the best part about Goli, for every sale generated, 
a child in need receives a six-month supply of essential vitamins with vitamin angels. So if you don't believe what I'm saying, I'm going to give you some information so you can try Goalie for yourself. Here's a promo code you can use. It's Sue Lynn One. That's S U E L Y N N E One. And you'll receive 5% off of your initial purchase. Also, I'll leave a link in the description in the podcast. So, why don't you go and try it for yourself? You won't believe how good it tastes. That's Goalie. All right, and we're back. You know, despite the largest national initiative to date aimed at improving racial disparities, these disparities appear to persist and in some cases have worsened, highlighting the need for renewed initiatives to improve healthcare equality. Now, racial disparities in the delivery of healthcare in the United States have been reported in multiple areas of medicine and in various surgical fields. Lower rates of preventive treatments and worse clinical outcomes after surgery have been shown for racial and ethnic minorities. Rates of use of multiple surgical procedures have been reported to be lower among racial and ethnic minorities than in white patients. Several reasons for these disparities have been proposed, including decreased access to care along with other social and systemic factors. Furthermore, a national U.S. survey conducted in 2017 noted that approximately 22% of Black adults avoided seeking medical care out of fear of discrimination. Numerous national initiatives have been implemented to help eliminate racial disparities in healthcare. The Institute of Medicine released a 2010 report showing little progress in the reduction of racial disparities in medicine. In 2011, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services launched the largest federally-based action plan to date aimed at improving healthcare 
equality for all races and ethnicities. This action plan was designed to help streamline policy efforts and government programs to reduce disparities among racial and ethnic minorities by assessing resource allocations, increasing the availability of data to improve minority population health, providing, providing initiatives for quality care of minority populations and assessing improvement in disparities over time. Subsequent policy changes and programs have also been developed, including a detailed guide for achieving health care equality from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement referring to racial inequalities as a forgotten aim. The extent to which these initiatives have led to subsequent improvement and or elimination of the racial gap of surgical use in the U.S. is not known. Specifically, to our knowledge, no recent studies analyzing changes in racial disparity using national all-payer samples examining a broad group of surgical procedures exists since the period of implementation of the HHS Action Plan. Now, the purpose of this study was to analyze trends over time and racial disparities in patients undergoing major surgical procedures in the U.S. and examine whether the gap in surgical use between white and black patients has widened or narrowed since the development of new national initiatives to reduce these disparities. In addition, they sought to analyze whether racial differences exist based on geographic factors, hospitals teaching status, or insurance type. Now, they hypothesized that despite national initiatives and health policy changes, persistent racial disparities would exist throughout the study period for the analyzed surgical procedures, regardless of, of geographic division hospital teaching status, or insurance status. Now, if you can go back, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know I did a podcast regarding this, um, how 
people of color, when you go to the emergency room, are discriminated against. And when you see some doctors, you are discriminated against. They either think that you are junkies or that you, um, I'm going to tell you like it is, are illiterate. And you, um, they can just run anything by you. That's why I always tell you guys, question your doctors. If you're going to a new doctor for the first time, interview them like they sit down and take your patient history. And if you get bad vibes from that doctor, you can easily get up and say, no, no, thank you. Stay with me and we'll go into this further. Ophthalmology Associates, PC, Drs. Berman and Dr. Zuckerbrod, treating diseases of the eye and eye surgery. You can reach them at 313-341-3450. Now, in this study um, that was performed about um, racial disparities in the use of surgical procedures in the U.S., um, the results may be surprising to some and not surprising to others. Now, the race-adjusted procedural incidence was higher for white than black patients for every procedure analyzed at every time point in the study for both men and women. For example, the incidence rate of total knee replacement in 2012 for white males was 184.8 per 100,000 persons and for black males was 79.8 per 100,000 persons. Yes, you heard it right. By 2017, these racial disparities persisted for all nine procedures analyzed. For example, the incidence rate of total knee replacement in 2017 for white males was 220.5 per 100,000 persons and for black males, it was 95.6 per 100,000 persons. The difference between use for white and black patients from 2012 to 2017 narrowed for five procedures 
including angioplasty. When analyzing CABG, carotid endorectomy, the and heart valve replacement specifically, I'm sorry, the rate of CABG remained relatively constant over time with white patients having nearly double the race-adjusted incidence per 100,000 persons. We're talking about 65.5 in 2012, 64.2 in 2017 during each year compared with black, 33.5 in 2012, 33.1 in 2017, Hispanic, 22.8 in 2012, and 26.0 in 2017. And Asian, 28.9 in 2012, 33.6 in 2017 patients. Let me repeat it one more time. When analyzing the CABG carotid endorectomy, THA and heart valve replacement, specifically the rate of CABG remain relatively constant over time with white patients having nearly double the race adjusted incidence per 100,000 persons. Now, In analysis of the race-adjusted incidence of CABG, carotid endorectomy, THA, and heart valve replacement by U.S. Census Division, comparing urban teaching hospitals with urban non-teaching hospitals, incidence rates were higher for white than black patients for every procedure in every U.S. Census division. For example, in urban non-teaching hospitals, in the East-North Central Census Division, the rate of CABG in white patients was 14.8 per 100,000, while the rate in black patients was, you ready for this, 3.1 per 100,000 in 2017. That's right, you heard that correctly. Although greater differences between white and black patients were shown in urban non-teaching hospitals, similar changes were observed in urban teaching hospitals. For example, in urban teaching hospitals in the New England Census Division, the rate of CABG in white patients was 55.7 per 100 
8,000, while the rate in black patients was 22.4 per 100,000 in 2017. Race adjusted incidents per 100,000 enrollees was calculated for each surgical procedure using race-based enrollment for each payment system. And when I say each payment system, I'm talking about Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance as the denominator. Within all Medicare enrollees, the race-adjusted incidence was higher for white than black patients for all procedures analyzed. And you know, 81.7% higher incidence of appendectomy in white patients compared with black patients. Now among all Medicaid, and we know that Medicaid is state enrollees, just like Medicare is a government based insurance, the race adjustment adjusted incidence was higher for white than black patients for all procedures, 74.4 higher for THA. Among all private insurance enrollees, using total private insurance enrollees by race, as the denominator, white patients had nearly doubled the incidence of all surgical procedures analyzed compared with black patients, 68.3% higher for colorectal resection. Now, Racial disparities in patients undergoing surgery have been reported in various settings and patients' groups. And I keep telling, I'm getting in my Southern voice now, keep telling y'all, I've worked in the medical system, I've seen what goes on. Never think. How can I say this? I'm going to have to be blunt and put it out there. But first, let me put this disclaimer out there. Not all physicians are the same. I'm not grouping every physician with what I'm about to say in one basket. Never think that race does not play a factor when seeking care, either in at the emergency room or in the doctor's office because the first thing they see is what type of insurance you have and the second thing they see is the color of your skin which determines how you will get treated. It is a known fact and it cannot be denied 
if you have a state insurance, there is a limited amount of what the doctor will do. And that is based on how they get paid. They will do the basics for you, but that's about it. And when you have a state insurance and you choose to go into these HMOs, you need a referral for this, a referral for that. It is a drawn out procedure before you can see the doctor that you want to see. And then when it comes time for you to see the doctor um, and you need a follow-up appointment, you have to go through the hassle of getting another referral then if you don't have that referral you have to sign um a waiver stating that um if you don't have the referral um within so many hours you are responsible for the charges And they wonder why people of color, and I'm talking about my black people, my brothers and sisters, whether you know me or not, um, why you won't go to the doctor? Because you're going to discriminate against them. You can get a... um a student resident doctor and be seen by them, they're going to discriminate because, um, I hate to say it, because it is not taught in medical school that every patient is a person, regardless of the color of their skin, educational background, or socioeconomic status. They don't teach doctors that. They teach doctors to the art of medicine and how to practice medicine. And you see some doctors who have wonderful bedside manner. And I think when a doctor exhibits that bedside manner towards their patient, that is something that is within them, a kind, um, they have a kind heart, a giving soul, and they want to see the best for that patient. They don't look at the color of your skin or what type of insurance you got. They don't look at your socioeconomic background. All they care about is making you feel better and getting you on board to um, the plan of care that they have devised for you to stay healthy. If the medical field can put medical students through a course to show them that 
All black people are not the same. All white people are not the same. All Hispanic people are not the same. All Asian people are not the same as they display on TV. Just like the myth that they feel that we can handle, we as black people can handle pain more better, that it is inherited in us, that we can handle pain more better than whites or any other race. That's ludicrous. You know, I know individuals who have lupus that go to the ER in pain for relief and they'll give them a Tylenol number three or number four. And when that individual tells them, I need something much stronger, they are told, well, that's all we can give you. We can't give you anything thing more stronger. You have some doctors that really don't care. They'll take their time seeing you in the ER. And like I said before, I've experienced it. I've seen it. And I have spoken up about it. So, my friends, what are your thoughts on this? I'm interested to find out. But this should give you something to really think about. That race impacts the quality of care and it impacts the disparities in the use of surgical procedures. All right, almost forgot. Here is the rule to win the Oriental Art Set. All you have to do is send an email to my story, Living with Lupus Podcast. And just in a short paragraph, tell me why you love art so much. And that's it. That's all you have to do send me an email stating why you love art so much. Now, I will choose a winner over the weekend and you will hear who the winner is on the next episode, which is next week of my story, Living with Lupus. Don't forget, Just tell me why you love art so much and send it to me at my story living with lupus at gmail.com. Well, I'm back. I would like to thank. CEO, entrepreneur, advocate, influencer, Stephanie 
Jerry for telling her story and how she lives a positive life with lupus. Lupus is not a death sentence. It all depends on you. I would like to leave you with this. Disparities in the healthcare delivered to racial and ethnic minorities are real and are associated with worse outcomes in many cases, which is unacceptable. Dr. Joyce Lynn Elders said it better. Health is more than absence of disease. It is about economics, education, environment, empowerment, and community. The health and well-being of the people is critically dependent upon the health system that serves them. It must provide the best possible health with the least disparities and respond equally well to everyone. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks. For my story, Living with Lupus, I'll see you next week. Have a most enjoyable, peaceful, productive, and oh so blessed week. Stay safe, everyone.